Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia as just being part of the gig when I did more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, I dug a little deeper and it turned out that I had a ton more to learn. So in this series, we are trying to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. Later in the show, my friend Dr. Michael Grandner is back from the University of Arizona to cover some pretty compelling new developments in sleep science. But first, we wanted to touch base with my sleep doctor, Dr. Mark Boulos from Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto and follow up on the announcement of a pretty prestigious award. Here's what that conversation sounded like. It's been a while since I've gotten to ask you this question, and I feel like your return visit to the show is overdue. So, Mark, let me start with, how did you sleep last night? I slept very well. It was a great night. I was up late, but I got to sleep in. And so I'm feeling super refreshed and very happy to be with you today, Neil. Yeah, you're a person who just naturally, or I don't know if it's naturally, or you've done some kind of circadian shift, but you're up until the wee hours and up later in the day too, and you have the flexibility of being able to schedule your appointments around that. Is that something that just came naturally to you and you've just adapted to it, or did you train yourself to do that? Yeah, great question. I've always been a night person, and then with academic medicine, I don't know, just with the demands... And so on, over the years, I just became someone who got more and more used to working in the nights. Stuff got done. It was always rewarding. And then I just managed to be able to, you know, given my job, I was managed to be able to get away without having to have really any morning appointments. So I have the privilege of being able to start at one o'clock on many days. And uh, that's my starting hours. And no one makes a fuss about it as long as you're being productive. It's like that BTO song, Blue Collar, where he says, I'd like you to know I need the quiet hours to create in this world of mine. So there you go. You have something in common with BTO. How bad can that be? I don't know what your skills are like at the guitar. That's a different conversation. Okay, so I just want to read from uh, the press release. I, I Because I decided as soon as I saw this, oh, we got to get Mark back on the show. Here is the press release. It says, congratulations to Dr. Mark Bullis, neurologist, awarded the 2020 Wayne A. Henning Sleep Medicine Investigator Award from the American Academy of Neurology. First of all, I was under the impression that you might be too much of a big shot to come back on the show now, Mr. Award winner guy. But congratulations. This is quite an achievement. You're so kind. Thank you. And thanks to God. And thank you to so many people who made it possible. Mentors, family, wonderful students, wonderful team. So thanks, Neil, for the very kind congrats. And It says, in recognition of his outstanding research and scholarship in linking sleep apnea with cerebrovascular disease. Now... When you and I first sat down, coming up on a year ago now, it's and yikes, it's been that long, you told me that I had very mild sleep apnea, not nearly the sleep apnea that my family doctor thought required a visit to Sunnybrook in the first place. And I got to tell you that my session with you when we first sat down together and we went over the results of that first sleep lab, I don't know how many episodes of the show you've gotten the chance to listen to, but... Every time I bring up my periodic limb movement index of 82, I get reactions from the entire sleep, neuroscience, neurobiology, whatever community that are some form of the version 
Wow. Jay Ellis was on last week from uh, Northumbria University in the UK, yeah. and he said, yeah, congratulations, you win. <laughs> <laughs> it's a high number, but it's not. I've seen worse. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. The good thing, though, Neil, is that when we did your CPAP titration back in November, because I'm looking at your results here, that's why... Maybe some of your listeners can hear the mouse clicks going. But in fact, when you did your, when you ran that CPAP study, so remember when you did that sleep study in October, when you used the CPAP, in fact, your periodic movement index down, went down to 1.5. So yeah. not only did the CPAP improve the sleep apnea dramatically, actually, it also took away those periodic limb movements. And so that's really great. That's really well, and great. so did so did this stuff right here, the Mirapex prescription yeah. that you put me on, which I've been uh, taking religiously. I've learned the timing of the Mirapex now, and I've discovered that if I take it like somewhere between two and three hours before bed, I'm in pretty good shape. If I take it less than that, then I less than two hours before bed, I still have that kind of tossy turny start to my night. So it's been an interesting thing learning the timing of it. Although I will tell you, uh, a few episodes ago, we're probably going back about two or three months now, conversation with Richard Allen from Johns Hopkins University. Yes, I know Richard. Yeah, very well. I met him at a few conferences. Great researcher. Yeah. Really one of the most leading restless leg syndrome researchers. And so uh, my experience with Mirapex came up and my results apparently are, are pretty typical uh, for someone in my situation. But one of the things that he said to me is that at some, Mirapex is one of those things with restless leg that once you, his experience at least, once you stop the drug, the restless leg comes back. And so it's one of those things where people frequently are trying to figure out what the other thing is. And he was at the time looking into iron supplements and things of that nature. And I'm reminded that I am a terrible patient because when I came to see you at Sunnybrook, I was rather let's say tardy with my blood work. And so we never got to actually figure out whether I was having any kind of iron issue, but it's interesting that iron and at least the availability of iron for the patients seems to make an even possibly more tangible difference than the medication do. Yeah, absolutely. So he's right on and he's again the leader in the field. In his latest talks, he has always pushed the iron idea like that in fact the iron might be more important than the dopamine or that they play very closely with each other and he has some very nice animal models and these research models that he's proposed and they're quite convincing and as he does say the Mirapex once you stop it like Mirapex is a little bit of a band-aid solution that increases the dopamine level and then thereby through a number of fairly complicated mechanisms actually treats the restless legs but the underlying pathophysiology, as you alluded to there, may actually be more related to the iron. And, and, and a lot of leaders in the field now are proposing that you give iron infusions to a lot of patients with restless leg syndrome who meet certain criteria. When we talked about six months ago, and I think that's around the last time that we actually got together in front of microphones, we were talking about the availability of home testing for sleep apnea. And I'm wondering if in the last six months, that needle has moved at all. Are, are we any closer to making things more widely available for people to be able to get diagnosis? I'm, I'm assuming that also the stupid virus has maybe made some inroads in making the urgency more 
top of mind for people to be able to do stuff like this from home. Are we any closer? Yeah. And in fact, as you'll be aware, and maybe some of your listeners will be aware, many sleep labs were closed during the pandemic. Uh, and that's because of concerns of spread of the virus. Now, the sleep labs, thankfully, have opened up again. One big challenge, though, is that you can't run. We're, we're still slowly opening up to CPAP titrations because CPAP's thought to be an aerosol-generating procedure. But the short answer to your study is that there's even a greater sense of urgency now because of, again, because of the real need to do these things in an ambulatory fashion uh, away from coming into a lab. And again, that might have so many implications, not only financial implications, because using a home-based approach is just better and cheaper for the healthcare system, but also practically where when labs are being closed down because of all of these different uh, issues like spread of a virus, uh, that just might be the more practical and pragmatic approach. So every year, the government negotiates with the Ontario Medical Association, and this is something that they should seriously be looking at in the near future, and we'll hope for some good news in the future. But right now, there hasn't really been any change. In fact, if anything, the government would be short money because right, exactly because they've thrown in some and appropriately so thrown in so much money and supporting people who have been hit hard by the by the pandemic. Although it's interesting because a couple of different people who do you know similar to what you do for a living, Jay Ellis, Michael Grandner, for example, yeah. have talked about this idea that the pandemic might actually help push funding towards sleep and things like acute insomnia and sleep apnea and things like that, specifically for that reason, because it's so much more difficult to get people into a laboratory setting. Yet we're starting to see the impact that sleep is having on people's ability to fight, as I like to call it now, the stupid virus. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Neil, I think it boils down to who's paying for it. So in the States, like when you speak to Mike Grander and, you know, Jay Ellis and so on, they, the payers are usually the insurers, right? The insurance companies and the insurance companies have already appreciated the fact that these home-based tests are just probably better bang for their buck. Oh, in Ontario, for example, we're relying on OHIP. And so we have a single payer and they're still coming around to that. But hopefully again, inroads will be made in the upcoming months and years. So as an award-winning sleep medicine investigator, I, I'm never going to get tired of saying that phrase, and you're probably never going to get tired of hearing it. What's the stuff that's on your radar right now? What's got your attention as far as the research front is concerned? Yeah, I think, I, first of all, I just want to take a step back and it's like, it's an honor to receive the award, but at the same time, there are so many other, so many well-qualified people out there too that... And that um, I'm very grateful to the Academy and so on, but I also acknowledge that there were superb candidates out there too that could have been even more deserving of it. The, the things on my mind right now are novel therapies for sleep apnea. I think that has to be a really important thing that we think about. There's so many patients who still can't tolerate CPAP, like you did great on it and uh, things really turned around for you really well. But a lot of people do struggle with CPAP and, uh, and so one thing that my lab is working on is alternative therapies other than CPAP to treat sleep apnea. And we've been using a whole bunch of different methods, and I'm very excited about them. One thing that's really caught my attention is the use of actually cannabis. Now, we haven't started work on it directly, but other labs have. And I think cannabis may play an important role in treating potentially sleep apnea, but even other things like 
restless leg syndrome and so on, and other, even maybe even insomnia. So I think these are exciting areas, the novel therapies. The other thing that's cool in this area is the development of even more simple ambulatory monitors that use single channels or use very basic methods of detection. It will make it so much easier for patients to be detected with different sleep, disor sleep disorders so that they know, never actually need to go to the sleep lab. So yeah, again, lots of exciting stuff up in the, in, the, in the future here. If you're a person that snores, it doesn't automatically mean you have sleep apnea, does it? That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of people who snore and actually don't have sleep apnea. There's a phenomenon called non-apneic snoring. And we see it in the sleep lab all the time where you have a heavy snorer, yet when you run a full sleep study, you don't necessarily have apneic events, meaning you don't stop breathing in your sleep. Yeah, which was my case. Based on my wife's anecdotal evidence uh, that she relayed to our family doctor, right. our doctor said, oh, that's textbook sleep apnea right there. You got to, which for me, not to throw my uh, now former family doctor under the bus, but that's yeah. a recurring theme that's come up quite often on the show is that if, and not to unnecessarily smack around the medical schools. However, yeah. uh, overwhelmingly, I'm getting comments back from a lot of people in the sleep world saying, you know what? Med school needs to spend more time teaching general practitioners, family doctors, teaching them about sleep. Because, for example, and again, I'll go back to Jay Ellis from a couple of weeks ago. Jay tells us that in the UK where he is, sleep gets about seven minutes of instruction in medical school. He said literally seven minutes and most of the seven minutes is spent talking about sleep apnea. Yet for a condition with sleep disorders have such a profound effect on so many people, you would think medical schools would be in a bigger hurry to let more people going out as general practitioners know what the score is so that they can more accurately do referrals and send people to people like you so that they can get in for a sleep lab. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Neil. And uh, I studied at the University of Toronto. I think my mentor is the guy, Dr. Brian Murray. He's the one who uh, did the lecture, and I still remember it, for the medical school. It was 90 minutes long out of a four-year curriculum. And yet these are things that, you know, sleep basically affects every other disease that you'll ever be encountering. Pain, pain, stroke, we've discussed so many things, car accidents, so on and so forth. So you're right on. And there's, I think the medical schools, are, of course, are always struggling with what criteria, what, like, what, what do you put in your curriculum, right? Because there's so many important things to address, but sleep is definitely undertaught and appreciate the, the support and the exposure to that. I absolutely wanted to reach out and uh, congratulate you on the award, uh, see what else is in the hopper for you of late. And uh, it's just good to hear your voice on the show again. Mark, thanks for making time for this. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Neil. And here with an update on the latest science from the sleep world, Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah. So, so now that we've spent a great deal of time patting Mark on the back uh, for, for his uh, for his work and his achievements. Um, and by the way, uh, thank you, Mark, for re-upping my Mirapex prescription in the middle of the episode. That was great. Um, it's time to figure out what's on your mind. Um, you know... On my mind this week is the kids going back to school, and which gets me thinking about something really interesting that's been happening in terms of sleep over the last few months, and we've been seeing this data coming up from a few different sources, is really that people's sleep schedules are changing, where on average people are staying up later, they're waking up later, um, 
some people are sleeping more, some people are sleeping less, more people are sleeping more than less. Um, but in general, our schedules are getting disrupted. And now that kids are back in school, it's causing another big change to the system in terms of schedule. So I, I'm, I guess I'm keeping my eye out for data, looking to see how we're adapting to this. So, you know, there's a huge controversy right now in terms of school start times. And, you know, the, 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 in the nutshell, having the issue be that having teenagers wake up at five, six in the morning is, uh, a bad idea. Um, I mean, it's practically akin to torture for at least for some of them. Um, and then we wonder why they don't do well physically or mentally or academically. Um, but now we, we just had this big experiment where we all sort of canceled school and, and looked to see when we went, put school remote, when, when are the people actually getting up? And it's showing that, you know, even even adults who don't have to go to school, when we don't have to wake up early to go to work, we stay in bed a little bit later, and and it may actually be a good thing. So, so what's been on my mind is, are we going to lose um, everything that we've learned over the past few months? You know, in, in this big experiment we all took part in, though none of us consented to. Um, <laughs> it, it, in this big experiment, we saw cha people sleeping on average a little more. We saw people, you know, on average not having to wake up early if they didn't want to. Um, and was that a good thing? And it would be great to track that. But now are, are, with the kids going back to school and more people going back to work, I wonder if what that means is we're going to lose some of these benefits, especially at least what, the way I'm thinking about it, especially people who are generally hardest hit by all these things. You're talking about the people who come from the most disadvantaged backgrounds, the ones who, who need their kid in school, in person, because they need to go back to work, for example, or else they might lose their job. Um, or people who are in more precarious situations, you know, how are they dealing with this? Where on the one hand, I get that this is why we need to have schools open because some people just, they need it. If the rest of the world is going to move on, um, they need to have the capacity to do that. But on the other hand, you know, was it a good thing for a while? And, and are we going to see the benefits and then are we going to lose them? So that, I guess that's what's been on my mind this week. And it's interesting too, that while all this is going on and, and while we, we seem to maybe even settle into a new sleep rhythm, um, and now we're going to foul it all up again. Uh, I, I see a new term has been coined for it. I just saw, uh, our friend, uh, Seema Kosla from, mm -hmm. uh, on Good Morning America, where they were talking about what Good Morning America has branded COVID somnia which yeah. is something we've been batting around for a while. We just didn't have a name for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on. I feel like there's a lot of people who are having a lot. So part of the reason people are staying up later is probably because they're naturally able to, and because they're waking up later, but also part of it, I think is people are having a hard time detaching. I mean, last time we talked about mobile device use in bed, I mean, and that was data gathered years ago. I, I can't even imagine what mobile device use in bed is now um, in terms of people checking the news and checking the numbers. And now everyone is kind of an epidemiologist and, and, and trying to figure out what testing. So like, how do we know we're testing too much? Like using these, these epidemiologic concepts and everyone's got opinions about them and they're, and like they're reading all this. And at the end of the day, no pun intended, um, <laughs> we're having a hard time 
detaching from all this stuff. And I think that's a big cause. And so there's also uh, this thing that I see in the clinic a lot where people are waking up um, in the middle of the night more than they used to. And um, I think actually my, my pet hypothesis about this is that it's actually the same thing where they were tired enough um, to fall asleep at the beginning of the night, but all of these thoughts and worries and everything are still there and they're, they're lingering over them. It's like, you know, they're standing at their bedside silently waiting for them to open their eyes and see them there. And so like you have a natural awakening and then you, and, and your brain is like, Oh, now that I have your attention, did you forget <laughs> to worry about all this stuff? Um, <laughs> right. You know, all this stuff, you, you were too tired to worry about it when you're into bed, but don't worry, I kept it warm for you. So now that, <laughs> now that you've had a little bit of sleep and you're really tired, disoriented, let's all think about all that stuff now. Sure. Um, and and, I, and I, I'm hearing that experience a lot from people. And I think, you know, if there was such a thing as COVID somnia, it's, it's really that. It's, it's this combination of changing our sleep schedule with having this difficulty detaching, whether it's because our schedule is just sort of disintegrated or, or, or at least more irregular um, or staying up later and getting up later, which means we're not ready to fall asleep at our normal time anymore. And, and then everyone, and, and, you know, one thing that hasn't really come into these conversations about sleep and, and COVID is food. And, and as you know, everyone jokes about the, the COVID-19 pounds that, that, yeah. that they're putting on. Um, but I, I wonder if eating patterns are also playing a role here where if, if people are, um, if, if changing how people is eating is changing how people are sleeping and, and, and mental health and because all these things are connected and, and people being sedentary and not going out or because the gyms are closed or what, what have you. So I wonder how all this stuff is connected. I think it is. And um, I think the best way to approach it is to I gave a presentation to a bunch of junior researchers and the, my slide on this was titled use what you know, like we already know what to do how to help get our sleep better. We just maybe aren't doing it. And, and there are things that we can do now, even with all this stuff going on, that can get us back into shape. And maybe the kids going back to school is a good thing because it gets us to reevaluate what we're doing and, and take stock. What's interesting is you say that all this stuff is linked and everything is related to all of it. Uh, the one thing I do know for sure is that not only from a policy perspective, but from a, um, you know, from, from, uh, school start times and all those kinds of things to just the way we interact with our jobs and all these different kinds of things. The one thing I do know is that sleep will always be the thing that gets considered last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I like to think of it is if you're trying to balance your health on diet and physical activity alone, you're trying to balance on a two-legged stool. Yep. And, you know, it's much easier to balance on a three-legged stool. You know, sleep is just important and, and they all keep each other in line to keep the stool analogy. Like if, if, if you've got three legs on the stool, it's much easier. If one of them is slightly out of balance, it's much easier to not fall over it still. Uh, if you if you're balancing on three legs, but if one of them is totally out of whack, you know it's not going to work. And I think and I think the the thing about sleep is, it's one of those things that's probably easier to get a handle on. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of of work, but but to be honest, 
you know, when, when you do multimodal behavioral interventions, we are impacting diet, sleep, exercise, smoking, all this stuff. It's the sleep that usually changes first. Um, not because it has to change first, but because it's probably the easier thing to change. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah. And, 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 and I think, I think everyone out there who's thinking, yeah, but you know, I don't have time. I don't have I, I keep thinking, what if I could give you the time and the mental clarity? Maybe it's not, maybe you're not having sleep problems because you don't have the mental clarity and, and time in your day. Maybe it's, maybe you don't have the time and mental clarity in your day because you haven't focused on your sleep enough. Instead of saying, how much sleep do I have left at the end of my day to spend in my pocket? You think, well, how much do I need for tomorrow? And let me save that and, and, and budget for that. Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game, right? You could, uh, sleeping 10% better could make you 20% more efficient the next day. I mean, I'm pulling numbers out of the sky, but still, and and to try to explain that to people um, who don't have the data in front of them is is an interesting challenge, which is, like I say, why it always is the thing that we'll think of last, because everybody feels like they can, oh, I can make up for my sleep later, or I'll tough it out, or I'll have an extra cup of coffee, or whatever, and they feel like, no, no, I've I've got this. I had some extra coffee, so I'm good. Mm, No, not how it works. But thanks for coming. Yeah, I mean, drinking that extra cup of coffee, you're just making bad decisions faster. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I got to write that down. That's good. That's good stuff. Michael, always a treat, man. Thanks for the time. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Take care. There you go. Tons to come on next week's episode of the Snooze Button Podcast, um, including one of the legends in the podcasting world, Evo Terra, will be on the show. So will Spencer Dawson, a pretty darned impressive sleep researcher in his own right. And of course, Michael Grandner will be back as well. So a star-studded episode coming next week. If you liked what you heard, please, by all means, leave us a review or find out ways you can support what we're doing by going to thesnoozebutton.com and you can look at the link across across the top that tells you uh, about supporting the show uh, through reviews or letting other people know what we're doing, all those kinds of things. In the meantime, I'll see you back here next week for another episode. My name's Neil Headley, and hey, get some sleep, would you? Would you?